All right, great. Um, before we get going, I want to say just, uh, just a heartfelt thank you to all of you, um, just not only on my behalf, but um, on behalf of my wife and my boys for all of the just really kind letters that you wrote us um, over the last few weeks for Pastor Appreciation Month. And um, that whole month's a little awkward for us, um, but I, I just want to say thank you for loving on us. Um, you know, we, we have not had a chance to go through all of the letters yet, but I want to tell you what, on a, on, a, on a typical Sunday night, Monday morning, those will be good, put to good use um, when, uh, when, when we just need um, just to be encouraged and, and uh, just to, to know how much you truly love us means, I can't tell you how much it means to us. And so, and I wanted you to know how much we love you and how much um, it means to us to be here and how much uh, we value just the opportunity to serve you and uh, to, to just from me to you be to be your pastor. It's truly an honor, and I, and I love you, all, each and every one of you. So um, get your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and you probably notice over here on the stage I've got uh, a couple bowls of fruit, and when I walked over here, I, I had to really look at these again, um, and if it weren't for stickers, I might not be able to tell which bowl is which, because one of these bowls is, is fake, the other one is real. Um, when I first saw them this morning and I walked up to them, I, I truly could not tell the difference because on the outside, they look the same to me. I mean, this is some really good fake fruit over here. I mean, I don't know how expensive this was, but I appreciate, Lindsay, Paige, sacrificing your fruit. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, but I, I want to tell you how you really can tell the difference. Um, when you go through tough times, and many of us have gone through tough times, I mean, we've been, ch- some of you have been really challenged. You have been put to the test I mean, you have been hammered on. You've had some very stressful moments over the last few years. I mean, the economy, maybe your marriage, your kids. I mean, whatever that looks like for you has really revealed um, what you're all about. I mean, whether you're just, you know, what's on the inside of you. And uh, one of the ways that you can tell what's on the inside of this fruit is just to take a hammer to it. I mean, um, you know, is this, is this the real orange or not? I mean, well, the only way you can do that is, is to really slam on that thing. And you just see that, I mean, there's, it's, it, it, there's nothing of substance in there. I mean, it's just, it's not quite empty. There's stuff in there, but, but what's in there, you can't eat this. I mean, you'd get sick if you ate this. I mean, this is just, there's nothing of, of good value, good use in here. It's just, you know, kind of empty. I mean, if you take one of these apples, you know, like that, and I'm going to tell you what, I, I do better pounding fruit than pounding nails. Truly, I mean, it's a, but you know, again, there's just nothing, but I'm going to tell you what, you take one of these apples, y'all cover yourself now. All right. You take one of these apples. I mean, you put it through the test, you put it through, you know, the, the, the test of just life or whatever. I mean, man, you've got, you see that inside of there is some fruit. I mean, there's stuff you can use. There's some good stuff in there. All right. I mean, what about an orange? What about an orange? This is like the Ginsu hammer. All right. Oh, yes. I didn't really hit this very square. If I did, you know, maybe I just hit it. Yeah, there you go. See, if you hit it a little slower, then the pastor gets full of fruit. So, but you, what are you doing? Oh, thank you so much. I was missing this. Yeah. Um, But, you know, that's really the difference, uh, how you tell whether something's fake or real and really what's inside uh, of us. Is, is when we go through tough times. And some of you, again, I mean, the economy has caused you to, to really struggle. And, and you've, you've had a chance to really see what you're made of. You know, whether what's inside has value, has substance, whether it's hollow, empty, or, or really whether there's some good usable stuff in here. I mean, even with me just 
hammering it, I could still eat that, you know? I don't want to lick the table, but... Um, and that's where this whole value that we're going to talk about this morning comes into play, the value of, of authenticity. Because we desire as a people and as a church to be real. And um, even when we go through tough times, even when we, you know, we get hammered on and, and stuff happens to us, I mean, we desire to be a real people. Um, and, and because what happens when, when we're real is that it produces something. Authenticity produces unity. Where does it produce unity? Well, I mean, it produces unity in our homes, in our marriages, with our kids, in our relationships, with our kids' teachers, with their coaches, with our friends. I mean, and, and it produces unity inside the church. And so I want to read this value to you. It's, it's the fifth value we've talked about. And it says this, because none of us are perfect, we acknowledge both our strengths and our weaknesses as we pursue holiness and unity as a church. Truth-telling and biblical resolution are essential to relational authenticity. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul lays this out for us. And he talks about this value of, of being an authentic Christian. What it really looks like to walk in a manner, to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that God has placed on your life. What it really means to, to be real inside, um, to, 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 to walk after Christ. And, and here's what he says. He says in verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord... Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Ready? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what you need to understand is that we, believers, we have been called to live worthy. And Paul starts off this letter by describing himself as a prisoner of the Lord, as if to say, listen, what I'm about to ask you is really going to be tough. And quite honestly, it's going to cost you something. Matter of fact, I'm in prison be because of it, but here it is. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, this word urge is a very strong word in the, in, in the New Testament. It's a plea. Paul is literally begging us. And he says, listen, since God has already blessed you by giving you a relationship with Jesus, live out your calling. You've been called to a life of holiness. You've been called to, to live in unity. You've been called to, to be one of God's people. You've been adopted into God's family. You are one of his children. Now act like it. Walk it out. Live it out. Be real. Be authentic. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Now, sometimes when my boys um, go to spend the night at someone's house or they go away for a few days, um, like to camp or like this coming up weekend is drive-in, and so they'll be, a, they'll be gone from us for a few days, we, we will say to them, listen, remember who you are. Remember who you represent. You are a bloy. You represent our family, the bloy family, when you go to someone else's house. You also represent Jesus. So, so act like it. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you're a child of God. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God has made you a new person. You've received eternal life. You've been set free from the power of sin. You've been given a new heart. You're a part of the church. You've been given victory, victory and, and authority over Satan. So remember who you are and walk worthy of that calling. Now here's a huge problem for us. So many of us walk out of here and we live completely different than that. It's almost like we forget who we are. Um, we just go from one sin to the next all week long, and, and we live a completely different lifestyle than the one that Paul tells us that we've been called to live. I mean, there's nothing authentic about us. 
And so when we go through tough times, we're like this, this, this fake fruit over here. There's nothing of substance coming out of us. See, you either put on a mask when you're in here pretending to be a Christian when you're not, or you're putting on a mask out there acting like you're not a Christian when, when maybe you are. And uh, if you identify with the latter, I would imagine that you're probably pretty, pretty miserable. And if you're not miserable, then you, then you need to ask yourself the question, am I truly saved? Is, Jesus, is the Holy Spirit truly taking up residence in my life? What Paul is saying here is be the real deal. Be authentic. To live any other way is hypocrisy. And I know some of you are struggling this morning. You, you've walked into this place and you're stuck. You're struggling. You're, you, you've got a sin issue in your life. And you don't even know how to get out of it. You're so far away from God, you don't even know if you can find your way back. And you're tired of pretending to be someone that you're not. And you're miserable inside. Listen. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, the, the, the chapter before this, Paul says, Now all glory to be to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever ask. In other words, God is able. He's able to bring you back to a place of repentance, a place where God can begin to, to do a fresh work in your life. You not only have the opportunity to come back to God and receive forgiveness for your sins, but you have the ability within, within you through Jesus Christ to live the life out that he's calling you to live, to, to live worthy. You have everything that you need to walk worthy of the calling on your life. You've already been given all the power and all the grace to be able to pull this off. Now, how does that flesh out? What does it look like to truly live worthy? When, when you squeeze the real deal, when you squeeze this fruit out, what, what do you get out of that? What should you get? Well, Paul begins to lay it out for us. He says, someone who lives worthy lives in humility. Now, most people associate humility with weakness, but the Bible is, is, is you know, kind of tells, tells us that it's one of the most char- uh, important characteristics we can possess. Living a life that is worthy is when you choose to be humble before the Lord. And a person who chooses to be humble shows tremendous strength. Humility means putting Christ first, others second, and you last. Now, you have to have some incredible balance to do that because if you focus too much on humility... It can, it can quickly turn to pride. And, and I always know when I'm struggling with pride, there's usually one of three things that, I'm, that I will start dealing with. I will, I will either start seeking credit for things that God has done because maybe I feel insecure, or I, I begin to have a pity party feeling sorry for myself, which is, which is pride, or my heart is, is not as sensitive towards sin. And Satan is going to make sure that we struggle as, as Christians and struggle with pride. Why? Because it is the one sin that we commit that says to God, I just don't need you. I can do this on my own. And Satan loves that. He loves for us to get hung up on the word me. What about me? What about my rights? What about my needs? My, my, my voice, my, my vote, my opinion. More than anything else, he loves to convince us that we don't need God in our lives, that somehow or another we can pull this off in our own power, that we're good enough within, within ourselves, strong enough to be able to do this by ourselves. Listen, one of the greatest lessons you can learn in life is to choose humility before God chooses it for you. One of the greatest lessons you can learn in life is to choose humility before God has to choose it for you. First Peter chapter five, all of you, he says, all of you clothe yourself. In other words, put on humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty right hand that he might lift you up in due time. Again, sometimes we want to be heard. We want to be recognized. We want people to applaud our efforts, but we often take the wrong path to get there. 
We try to promote ourselves or get, you know, bring recognition to ourselves. And First Peter says God shows favor to the humble and in due time he will lift them up. Proverbs 15, 33 says before honor comes humility. Now there's nothing that is going to destroy unity in a church or put a wedge between people more than pride. And I guarantee you if you look at a church that has any kind of problems going on, pride is in the midst of it. Pride is probably at the very center of it. That's why we, it's so important that we have to keep ourselves and choose humility before the Lord. Now, how do you do that? Well, the only way that you can ever really achieve humility in your life is to have a proper view of yourself and a proper view of God. Charles Spurgeon said, humility is to make uh, a right estimate of oneself. And so when you can look at yourself and you can realize, okay, self, you know, all of the amazing things that God has done for me and the incredible worth that I have in God's eyes, the only reason that happens is because of Jesus, and the only thing good about me, the only thing that good that comes out of me, comes out of my life, is a gift from God. And when you can get to that place, you're on your way to humility. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves both before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's that promise again, that honor comes out of a life of humility. Now, I know this creates some tension for some of you, okay? Especially for some of you men, because you, you are driven Okay, you're ambitious. You're driven towards success. We have a lot of ladies like that too, and and, and so you 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 face this tension. I mean, some of your jobs actually call for you to promote you, and so what do we do with that? Well, every day you just choose humility. Every day we should be getting in the in, alone in the presence of God and just saying, Jesus, guess what? God, I I, I choose to humble myself before you. If you want to make me successful, so be it. If you want me to have recognition, so be it. But today, through your power, I just choose to be humble. You see, when I see people struggling with pride, I, it tells me that they've not spent enough time in the presence of Jesus. So humility, is, it, it, that is, that's, a, that's a byproduct of walking worthy. And then the other thing is, is, is we live in gentleness. The word gentleness means meekness. The dictionary says, the dictionary says meekness means timid or deficiency in courage or spirit. But Paul has something completely different in mind when he's writing this. The word gentleness has nothing to do with weakness. Matter of fact, it's a word that is used to describe a wild animal that has been tamed. It's kind of, especially uh, like a horse that's been broken. You know, a horse, when you're trying to tame it, I mean, it's got tremendous speed. It's got tremendous power. It can run, you know, super fast. Run, when it's not tame, it, I mean, it's, it, they're hard to control. But when you break a horse properly, it's only going to run where you tell it to go. It's only going to go as fast as you tell it to go. Biblical gentleness is power under control. The gentleness that Paul is talking about here is power under the control of God. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter drew out his sword to defend the Lord. He actually cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus said, listen, you don't need to defend me, Peter. Anytime I want, I can make an appeal to my father. And, and at a moment's notice, he could send 12 legions of angels to defend me. But Jesus chose not to do that. He constantly chose not to use the powerful resources at his disposal. He could have saved himself, but he chose gentleness. He chose power under control. Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus could have come to earth, and he could have basically just said, hey, you know what, everybody bow to me. 
I'm king, bow to me. He could have vaporized his enemies. He could have blown off the cross and said, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going I'm to bypass that whole thing. But that's not what he chose to do. He chose the path of gentleness. He made himself nothing. He became a servant. He, he humbled himself. He modeled gentleness for him. He was an example of power under control. That's the picture of gentleness that we've been called to live out. That's the attitude that we have to have towards one another. Um, last year, um, a movie came out by, by the name of, in, called Invictus. And it's the, it's the story of Nelson Mandela's rise to power in South Africa. Mandela was uh, sentenced to life in prison in, in 1964 for trying to, and the charge was sabotaging the South African government. And uh, after 27 years of, of being in, nearly 27 years of being in prison, he was released in 1990. And four years later, in 1994, um, in the country's first fully democratic elections, he became South Africa's first black president. Now, rather than go back and punish all of his oppressors, I mean, he, he, his, his prison term was, a very, was one of very hard labor, very oppressive. And um, rather than even, even go back and punish the previous government, which had, had, had oppressed the black race in South Africa for so many years, Mandela preached reconciliation. He preached unity. He actually kept some of the former government on his staff as long as they were willing to be all about unifying the country. And so the movie is all about how he used actually rugby as one of the tools to bring the country together. And when you look at that movie and you look at that life, it, it's a picture of gentleness. It's power under control. Now, I want you to think about this moment. Uh, think about this for a moment. Are you a person? Are you a person that likes to throw their weight around to get what you, 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 know, you want? I mean, are, do you make threats at times when you get upset? Are you someone that likes to create division? Do you like to stir up things just because you can? Or do you like to, to bring disunity to things? Or do you walk around worthy on the calling of your life that's on your life? Are you somebody that, that is gentle in spirit? You, you exercise power under control because being, authentic, being an authentic Christian means living a life that you've been called to live, living worthy of, of who Christ made you to be, being humble, being gentle. And then Paul uses the word patience. Now the word patience means long-tempered or long-suffering. The patient person is a person who can endure negative circumstances and never give in to them. Aristotle said that the greatest Greek virtue was the ability to tolerate insults and a readiness to strike back. Now, one of the things that I've learned about people who accomplish great things in life or, or even people that, that do great things for God is that it is always accompanied by criticism. If you, you attempt to do something great for God, to accomplish something great in life, you are going to face criticism. Matter of fact, um, you may not know this, but there are probably 50 or more websites out there, I'm sure there's even more than that, that, that are just designed to create and criticize pastors of large churches. It's almost like different biblical rules apply to the internet. You can say whatever you want. You can criticize whoever you want. You don't have to go through Matthew 18. You don't have to use any biblical principles for reconciliation or unity or anything like that. If you're, if you're in front of a computer, throw out the Bible. And I've often thought about what it's going to be like at, at the Bema Seat Judgment, you know, the judgment where we're judged for our works, where some of these guys and ladies stand before God and God says, well, what did you do with your life? How did you invest your life? Well, I basically spent my whole life criticizing other pastors. <clears throat> you know, I mean, Johnny, tell them what they've won. Um, wood, hay, and stubble. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's going to, I mean, and listen, don't go look for those websites, all right? Don't Google my name. You'll find me out there. I just don't, because you'll get angry. You don't want to, listen, I, a few, few months before, before Dr. Falwell died, Jerry Falwell died, who, who I used to work for, um, I, I, I had breakfast with him and, and I asked him pretty much one question. It was all about one question. I said, how do you handle all the criticism and insults that you receive? And, and I said, you are the most criticized person I know. How do you handle all of that? And he just said, Brian, I just learned to stop responding to it. I don't engage it. I don't let it bother me because if I spent all my time responding to my critics, I would never accomplish what God called me to do. See, a patient person is one that does not feel like he has to engage every battle that comes his way. And I know people out there, I mean, they are ready to go to war every time someone pushes their button. I mean, every time, anything that may look a little outside the box or look a little different than what makes them feel comfortable, I mean, they just get fired up. And then when, what ends up happening? Well, they begin to complain and whine, they gossip, they cause disunity, and they blow their testimony. And in this world, and especially in the church, we're going to have our differences. We are going to do things that irritate each other. I mean, I'm going to say things that you may disagree with. Sometimes the music may be too loud. Sometimes it may not be loud enough. (laughs) I know you may find that hard to believe. Um, Some of you are are going to struggle with maybe the service going too long, or we may not sing enough, or we may, you know, sing too much, or there's too much focus on outreach, not enough focus on outreach, too much discipleship, not enough focus on discipleship. And and we get all jacked out of shape about all that stuff, and, and we complain and we whine and we gossip and we do all these things and the bottom line is is that we are called to walk worthy of God what God has called us to be a child of God and that means that that we have to be patient with each other we've been called to be long-suffering with each other we've been we've been called to be long-tempered with each other we have to learn to value the differences that we may have with each other We have to learn to value people that are different than us, that are gifted different than us, that have a different temperament than us. Colossians 3.12, I love this. It says, therefore, God is, as God's chosen people, as God's chosen people, be holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and here's that word, patience. And then we're called to live bearing with one another in love. Now, the Bible talks about forbearing love as a love that gives unconditionally and continuously. It's unselfish. It's not judgmental. It gives whether or not it ever receives. It says, bear with me and love me because God's not finished with me yet. I've had people ask me um, time and time again, you know, is, is, starting the church, is starting a church the hardest thing that you've ever done in, in your lifetime? And, and I, don't even have, I don't even hesitate with my answer. I just say, nope, not even close. The hardest thing that I have ever done in my life, all right, is raising children. I mean, bar none. I mean, it has exposed every weakness that I have inside of me as a human being. It has humbled me. It has made me cry. It has made me yell and scream. It has made me do things that I won't admit to you. And sometimes, (laughs) sometimes I think, Brian, you know what? You're just a miserable, sorry sap of a a father. I mean, you, you are just terrible. You're a failure. You know, I mean, you ever, have you ever felt like that before at ra- those of you who raised kids? You know, you're just, you're just miserable. You're just a failure. You are terrible. I mean, you're, I mean, but you know what? God uses my kids. God uses my kids more than anything else to teach me to bear with one another in love. I mean, listen, I can be so angry at my boys. I mean, I, I can be ready to call the detention center. 
You know, listen, I mean, I can, be, I can be so fired up. I mean, I'm ready to call some of you and just say, please just raise them for a couple, couple years. I mean, and, to, and then all of a sudden, and I know I did the very same thing to my parents. My mom's over here. She could shake her head and go, yeah, oh yeah. All right. I mean, the, the fruit doesn't fall very far from the tree. Trust me. Um, you don't need to amen. I mean, just <laughs> seriously, I mean. But I want to tell you what, you know, my boys will walk in when things have calmed a little, down a little bit and they will just say, Dad, I want you to know I'm sorry for what I did. Or Dad, I want you to know how much I love you. And man, I just, I've messed up. And you know what? Everything inside of me just changes. It's like the anger goes away. It's like, I mean, just, it's just, the walls come down. I grab them and I'm like, oh man, you know what? Oh, I love these guys. I, I'm, I'm going to call the sheriff's department and say, don't come this time. You're good. All right. <laughs> And I, and, I, and I just, I'm reminded that, you know what, these little guys, I mean, which are not, they're not little anymore. Their work's in progress, just like me. God's not finished with them yet. And I just realized, you know what, I'm going to bear with these guys in love. Because God's still doing some amazing things, and he's not even close to being finished yet. And see, that's, what we, that's the way we need to be with each other. We're all works in progress. I'm a work in progress. Some of you may think I have it all together. Listen, sometimes I, I mess up big time as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, just as a man. And I'm a work in progress. And we're all in different places in the journey and we need to bear with each other in love. Forbearing love has the ability to look at someone who's in sin and love them regardless without, without excusing or justifying their sinfulness. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sin. Now, what about a person that I just cannot stand? I mean, I cannot tolerate them, all right? Here's what you do. You pray for them and you bear with them in love. And what will happen? Either God will change you or he will change them. I mean, it's, it'll happen, all right? I mean, some of you have been squeezed recently. This economy squeezed some of you. I mean, you have truly been just, you know, I mean, you've, you've had it handed to you. And, and I mean, it's, it's just tested everything inside of you. All right? And it's just, it squeezed you more than you've ever thought that you could truly, truly be squeezed. And, you know, maybe it's your marriage, your kids, your relationships, an issue at work, your, your kids' coaches or their teachers. When you get squeezed, I wanna, what, what comes out of you? When you get squeezed, what is it that comes out of you? What does it look like to walk worthy of the calling God's put on our life? What, is it, what does it truly mean to be an authentic Christian? When you get squeezed, what should come out of us Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. Now, let me tell you what happens when we choose to live a life of, that's worthy. I choose to live worthy. Here's what happens. Unity. The byproduct of humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other in love is unity. And that applies to every area of your life. It applies to your marriage. It applies to your, any relationship you may have. It re- applies to how you raise your kids, whatever. When you are hu- humble and gentle and patient and forbearing in love, there's going to be unity. Now listen to what Paul says about this in Ephesians 4, 3 again. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And Paul is saying, listen, we need to have a strong desire to protect the unity of the spirit. And then he gives us a very interesting thought. If the unity that Paul is talking about is of the Spirit, that means we don't create it. It's the Spirit that creates it. 
It's created as we choose to live a life worthy of the calling that God has put on our lives. The byproduct of all of that, the Spirit brings unity. And listen, we as a church, we're going to be constantly running into issues that challenge our unity. I mean, music. We all have different music tastes, different music styles. We all like it at different volumes. Some, some of you, you came in this morning and you were like, oh, acoustic worship. I mean, I'm, if you're at this campus on the day, I don't know what they've done at this morning at the, at the West Campus, but you know, this morning it's like, oh. Some of you are like, no, I brought a guest. I wanted y'all to rock out so I could see, you know, the music, you know. And, but we all think about it differently, all right? I mean, some of you, you know, you, I mean, the atrium it has, has been, for some of you, an issue. Let's be honest. Let's be real this morning. You know, on this campus, I mean, too much rock and stone for you, all right? You just soon go back to East Paulding where we sat on plastic chairs that squeak, squeak, squeak every time we moved, you know, because that was real. You know? And so that's, it's, it's been a challenge. And, and, but how are you responding to all of that? How are you responding to the changes that, that are made in the church at times? I mean, and this and that. I mean, see, listen, one of, God's, one, of, one of Satan's calling cards is to create disunity amongst God's people. To sometimes use even frivolous things to create disunity. And the Bible says a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so the challenge to us at any given time is that together we have to make every effort to protect unity. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says, preserve it. Hold on to it. This thing called unity is a very precious, Holy Spirit-created commodity. It's an incredible, fragile gift that we have within our possession. And we can either choose to destroy it. We can choose to let our pride and our arrogance or our need to be right or our need to be heard or our need to vote come in. Or we can choose to hold it up. We can choose to underestimate its importance. We can choose to devalue it. We can choose to mess around with it. Or we can choose to hold it up and champion it. We can place high, the highest importance on it. And we can, we can allow it to protect it, to protect us. And we can do everything that we can do to preserve it. You say, how do I do that? By walking in a manner worthy of his calling on all of our lives. See, when we walk in humility, when we walk in gentleness and patience and forbearing love towards each other, we say to God, God, listen, your agenda is greater than mine. Your plans for Westridge is bigger and better than mine. Your direction may not be the one that I would have chosen all the time. Your direction that I see the church going in may not be the one that I might have chosen. But Lord, you know what? I'm going to make every effort to protect the unity of the Holy Spirit. And see, when we choose to do that, when we choose to protect the unity of the Spirit, Paul says the Spirit brings us into a bond of peace. I want you to imagine a shield surrounding this building this morning, surrounding this auditorium, surrounding you as, as a crowd. Holding us together, keeping us together, not letting the enemy get in, binding us up. Literally, that's the bond of peace. That's the bond of, of peace that's found in the unity of the Spirit. Philippians 2.2 2 says, being like-minded, having the same love, being in its one spirit, and in one mind. Matter of fact, if you look at the rest of this verse I read, it talks about one God, one Lord, one faith. Well, when we do that, what's at stake? What's at stake with this whole talk? Let me tell you what's at stake. Change lives. What's at stake with the spirit of unity? Whether we value it or whether we destroy it. 
what's at stake is changed lives. Think about the role that this church plays in the world, the role that this church even plays in our community. And we've, we've planted worldwide nearly 60 churches or more. Disunity could destroy all that. Think about what's going on in Burkina right now. I mean, I don't remember the number of wells that we've done. It's 50, 60, something like that. But I mean, we've brought fresh water to people. We've given them physical, the, the, the ability to have physical health. The churches that we're, and we have a team over there right now that's building a church. Out in the villages where people are just as lost as they could possibly be. Think about, we're, we're tackling malaria. We're providing rescue to people who have AIDS. I mean, think about, you know, just even what's, what's going on with, in our community, with Community Makeover, and how out of that's been birthed in Gage Atlanta, and we're seeing over 90 churches now that are coming together to work together throughout the Atlanta region, and that number keeps growing. Think about just what we're doing to disciple new believers, you know, through the university now, and, and through the Monvi thing we're going to be throwing out in January, and what's going on with just even you know, the whole starting point and what's going on with students and, and what's going on with our children through the beach clubs and, and some of the, the, the public schools and think about the new campuses that are being started. Listen, you know what? Arguing over petty things, arguing over frivolous things could derail all of that. You see it happen all over the world every day in churches everywhere. Sin gets in, disunity, you know, is birthed and there's division and things just get derailed and they fall apart. See, so much is at stake here. And I want to tell you what, just on a very personal level, when people see the real deal, not perfect, not hypocrites, but just people who are genuinely seeking to walk worthy of the honor of being called one of God's children, you know what? They will be drawn to Jesus. There's a story um, about Gandhi um, that is told by a missionary by the name of E. Stanley Jones. And one day, he, years and years ago, he met with Gandhi. And he said, Mr. Gandhi, you you seem to quote the words of Christ often, but you appear to be so adamantly against becoming his follower. It's like you reject Christianity. And Gandhi said, listen, I don't reject Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. And Gandhi told a story, told a story of, of... of his reaction to Christianity that grew out of an incident that, that he had as a young man as he was practicing law in South Africa. He said he became attracted to the Christian faith. He began to study the Bible and the teachings of Jesus, and he began to seriously explore what it would be, what it would be like to become a Christian. He, he was getting ready to make that decision, and so he decided to attend a church service in South Africa a, at a Christian church. He said as he came up the steps of the large church where he intended to go, a white South African elder of the church barred his way at the door. And he said, where do you think you're going? And he used a derogatory term to describe him. And, and he said in a very belligerent uh, tone, um, he said, you're not getting in here. And, and Gandhi replied, I'd like to attend worship here. And, and the church elder snarled at him. He said, there's no room for, and he used the term again, for people like you in this church. Get out of here. Or I'll have my assistants throw you down the steps. And Gandhi said from that very moment, he decided to adopt what good he found in Christianity. But he would never again consider becoming a Christian if it meant being part of the church. See, that's what's at stake here. That's what's at stake. Life change. People, when they come in here, they've got to see the real deal. If all they see is this, the fake stuff, the stuff that really has no substance, the, the, the... 
this is not attractive. This doesn't fill people up. This doesn't draw people to Jesus. But if they can see this, you know, I mean, after all, this has bruises on it. It has some flaws. It has some imperfections. But if they can see this, you know what? It draws people to an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Authenticity draws people to authenticity. And we've been called to walk worthy. Now I want to do something, if I could. I want, I want you to stand. And I want you, um, I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable for just a moment, but it'll be worth it, trust me. I want you to, to lock arms with the person next to you, all right? With every person on both sides of you, okay? And I want you just, if you could, to just work it out, all right? Make every effort you can to lock arms, all right? All right? I mean, and I want you, West Campus, please do the very same thing. Get across that auditorium over there and lock arms with people. Um, We have people that refuse to go across the aisles. It's very weird. Folks, go across the aisles. Make every effort, okay? It's like, no, I'm not going to cross the aisle. I'm not going over there because that would be too hard. I've got to lead too many people to go across the aisle. I mean, it's too uncomfortable. It's too much work. You know, I know, listen, I know that what you just did, it, 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 it took some work. You had to go across aisles. You had to go across distance. You had, to, you had to move people with you, you know? Come on, we're going, all right? And it was hard, all right? And even right now, for some of you, it's a little uncomfortable. I mean, someone's in your space a little bit, you know? But I wish that you could see from my vantage point what it looks like for all of us to be together. This is, in my estimation, what it looks like to experience the bond of peace, to be unified, to be together. See, before you came together, we were all divided all over the place. And then when I said come together, you had to work hard. And, And that's what Paul's saying. He says, make every effort, regardless of how uncomfortable it is, regardless of what you have to do, to come together in the unity of the Spirit and keep doing it. And when you do, you will experience the bond of peace and you are bonded together right now. I know that when God is looking down for churches to use, he doesn't favor any one church. He's looking for churches that are unified, that are living lives individually and altogether collectively that are walking in a, in a manner worthy of the calling that God's put on our lives. And that's the kind of church he uses. And if churches get hung up on frivolous things, stupid, ridiculous things, things that really don't matter, but because of our pride, we have to have our voice heard, we have to be right, we have to have our needs met, we have to vote, we have to have our opinion. I, I think God, and I believe this with all my heart, he just says, you know what? I'm going to take my hand and move it over here to another church that gets it because my purposes are much greater than the needs of that church, especially when they're prideful and they're caught in arrogance. I will accomplish my purposes for this world whether I do it through Westridge or not. But when we can make every effort to come together in peace and just walk in gentleness and humility and, and patience and forbearing love, 
God is going to continue to use this church in a very mighty way. So with arms locked, I want, let's pray together, all right? Lord, we are praying for the bond of peace to cover our church, to protect us. I pray that we would be unified. And Lord, in, in a very symbolic way, we lock arms with the West Campus because we're unified by our values, by our vision, by what you've called us to be as a church through you, your word. And Lord, we trust today that when we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you put on our lives, we trust that you will use us in a mighty way and that you will help us to experience the unity that's found in the spirit, but that we would also experience the bond of peace. So do that in our midst today, in Jesus' name. Amen.